Ándate mamita que no puedo esperar If a little is good, wouldn't a lot be better? Well, maybe not when it comes to planning an adventure. Today we have a story about a group of experienced riders that collectively planned an adventure to go from Colombia to Ushuaia. They had it all. Experienced travelers, fully equipped bikes, an extensive support and contact network, even a support van and trailer equipped with a generator to charge your accessories. Was it enough? I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rock. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Tina Marie Austin. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. So as the story goes, Jim Hyde of Rawhide Adventures had sort of an epiphany while guiding a trip in South America. He was stopped with his group of clients for that obligatory photo where the Jim calls actually, the been there, done that photo, with only about 30 minutes to spare before he had to rush off to his evening destination. And while the clients busied themselves, you know, with various selfies and bike shots, Jim stood watching and sort of drifted off into thought. What he was thinking about was the fact that every time he visits these incredible world destinations, he's almost always on a tight schedule with just minutes to soak up this world-class site and move on. 
and it sort of hit him right then and there. He knew what he needed to do. He needed to set up a trip that was about the trip itself. So he came up with an idea to run an expedition where a group of riders would all work together organizing an epic adventure running the length of South America. A dozen riders were handpicked for the adventure and the group set about planning and organizing a trip that they would call Expedition 65. Now, Expedition 65 was an adventure, unlike a guided trip, where the the riders are a team of like-minded individuals that work together planning and prepping for the trip. Now, with all those people planning and organizing, you could sort of be forgiven for imagining that it would all work out and go off without a hitch. Of course, it didn't happen that way with Expedition 65. Problems with overloading, breakdowns, missing paperwork for border crossings, a grossly overloaded support van that was incapable of carrying a broken bike, and disagreements over the arduous and time-consuming effort of making a film about the trip while they're doing it. That all added to the challenge and even raised tempers among the group. In the end, the trials and tribulations fade, friendships are solidified, comfort zones were expanded, a movie was made, and an incredible coffee table book was produced, showcasing the adventure day by day. So when it comes to planning, due diligence, well, that's expected, but is meticulous planning better or a problem in itself? My name is Alphonse Palima. I'm a motorcycle journalist and I live in Los Angeles. My name is Colin Evans. I'm a retired uh, software guy um, from Britain, now live in America, live in Portland, Oregon. Alphonse and Colin, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Great to be here. How did you two meet? We met through Jim Hyde. We met through Rawhide Adventures and and on this trip. I mean, I'd heard of funds before. And I thought, I'm not sure. Did we meet? Yes, we must have met before we took off. We, at least we met at the planning session for this thing. I'm not sure if we met before yeah. that. But yeah, we, yeah, we met in Overland. as part of that. Oh, that's right. Overland Expo. That's right. Yeah. And you guys ended up going on this expedition called Expedition 65. Alphonse, just tell us roughly an overview. What is it? Uh, well, it's a it's a tour. It's a it's a group of guys that uh, colluded to come together and ride South America. Uh, we we began in Cartagena, Colombia, ten degrees above the equator, and we rode all the way down to the end of the world to Ushuaia, Argentina, uh, at fifty five degrees south latitude. Hence the name sixty five Expedition sixty five, the sixty five degrees exactly. of latitude that you covered, uh, and and the impetus for this trip was Jim Hyde from Rawhide Adventures. He was on a uh, had a tour group out, I guess. Yeah, we had a. Uh, in fact, in twenty fourteen, a numbers were were on a ride in South America. Jim had a, a bunch of us on a thing we called uh, the Continental D- D- Divide South. Uh, we'd done the Continental Divide North in the Rockies, and we said, "Hey, why don't we do the." Continental Divide in the South. So Jim had organized this trip from Lima down to Mendoza, cutting backwards and forwards across the Andes. And we were in, I think the way Jim would tell it, it was we were in Uyuni on the salt flats. But the way we'd organized that, it was such a sort of time-constrained thing that we basically had, you know, an hour to sort of ride out on the salt flats, you know, play around and and ride off again. And we, we all felt like we'd been cheated you know that we'd like to spend days there and explore that area so i think jim 
you know, over a couple of Pisco sours one night, you know, sort of mm. said, you know, why don't, why don't we come back and do this again? And, you know, let's just, and, and I think also Jim was sort of at the time a little bit uh, tired of being the outfitter, the guy to whom you went to, to find your luggage and the fuel stops and all the rest of it. And he wasn't one of the guys riding the trip. And he said, he just wanted to be one of the guys. So the, the, we said, fine, just pick 10 guys then let's go. So Jim picked, you know, a dozen folks that he felt wouldn't kill each other after 65 days on the road together <laughs> and, mm. um, had complementary skills and brought different attitudes and, and backgrounds to the whole thing. And we, collaborated kind of mutually with different each of us took a different role to put the thing together and off we went so this wasn't a tour it's not something that he sold everybody on this is something that everybody worked together on everyone in the expedition yeah yeah absolutely correct alphonse what did you do uh well i took the photographs uh i, I followed along and uh documented the group's uh good times I mean, for the, the trip prep, though, as you guys are, I mean, because this is a huge deal. Yeah, I think, did you guys have 15 people? Is that what it was? Yeah, there were 13 core riders, but we'll probably get into this later. We, you know, we had kind of people that joined and left as, the, as we went down the continent. So we were, you know, went for everything from 13 to 20, you know, on different, depending on who we were with and where we were and all that kind of stuff. And other times we got, other times we got split up. Uh, we didn't all go as one group because either because of mechanical failure or, you know, tiredness or some other reason, you know, we ver or we just very often split into groups of, you know, three to five ending up at the same place sometimes, you know, not always. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, my father's laughing. I uh, laugh cause I ended up by myself at one point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how do we you, did have groups. Wait a second. How do you manage that when you're with a group? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, as is a pattern of my own that um, in photographing other riders, I, I tend to roll ahead and um, <clears throat> and pick a place to st to shoot the guys that go by, pick a landscape, uh, you know, something that looks good or a, a good looking turn or whatever. And uh, I let I led on, found nothing, kept riding, kept riding. And they and they made a, a a meeting point they had planned to make. Uh, a decision of where we were going to spend the night. I didn't realize I had rolled through that checkpoint. And, uh, so they stopped and went in a different direction. And I went to what was our original night's plan. Stop. But, uh, <laughs> just kept riding. So I got, my picture is you sitting by the side of the road, camera in hand, waiting for the group that never shows up. That is quite true. I did that three times, and they're like, "Forget <laughs> it. I'm just going to go to the. I'm just going to go to the end point. Something happened. They'll eventually come to me." So, what did you do? You camp alone, or did you find them that night? I, well, I ended up. To, yeah, I ended up in the hostel uh, by myself. And the, there was we, we. We also went to. We also went to one town where you came in, at like three in the morning. Because as I remember, you know, funds is when we leave in a, when we left in little pods of you know four or five people. We all knew who was in that little group, and we kind of. But Funds was and constantly going backwards and forwards between those groups, you know, photographing one and waiting for another one, and so I think none of us really. We knew he was out there, but we didn't always feel quite the same sense of responsibility to make sure we knew where he was. Right, so it's true. Yeah, one day we all rolled into a town called Shive, and we've ridden over this hill, uh, and in um, in Peru near the Colca Canyon, and um, where's Fonz? 
well, we thought he was with you. No, well, we thought he was with you. Well, he was out there, as I recall, running out of gas with no money at, at like 20 degrees Fahrenheit on the top of a mountain at 16,000 feet and finally got in at four in the morning or something. Okay. Wow. The, the, um, I guess the, the, the non-rewards of being the official photographer. <laughs> true, true. But yeah, if you knew, if you knew when you were going to get there and how easy it was going to be, it would be called an adventure. Well, this is, this is true. Well, and let's talk about the adventure overall for the start here. You guys flew the bikes down to South America and then you rode South America. What was the plan there? The, uh, well, the, the logistical overview was we, we actually put all the bikes in a container in, in Miami, shipped them to Cartagena by sea. Uh, we spent a few days in Cartagena before we meant to leave to deal with customs issues and make sure all the bikes were prepped and that nothing was missing and everything was packed and in good shape. And then we rode to the end, put all the bike to Ushuaia, came back to a, um, a town called Punta Arenas, which is in, uh, in Chile, which is a big port. And we put all our stuff back in containers and waved it goodbye again, and back, that all got shipped by sea back to Los Angeles, uh, and we flew home. So that was that was the big picture overview of the, of the logistics. So now I understand your route was different than the average route. What was different about it? I, I, so it, when we started planning this thing, we, we, we sat in a, a room in a hotel in uh, Denver and just said, okay, how are we going to do this? And we really didn't know whether we were going to do, you know, 60 days, 90 days, uh, where we were going to go. We just knew we wanted to start at one end of the continent and finish at the end, at the other end. And when we looked at the, the wildly over-optimistic expectations we started with, well, let's go here and we'll go there and we'll do that. We'll go to the Amazon and we'll do this and we'll go to Buenos Aires. You know, whoa, stop. You know, we just yeah. described a, a six-month trip. Right. Mm. And so we and doing the same thing that the gym was sort of frustrated with right at the start. Right. Exactly. You, you exactly. ended up being at a spot for 30 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Right. So we, we wanted to smell the roses at some point. And so we kind of budgeted, um, you know, a block of days per country and then decided at the end of the day, the theme, the thing really would be to just ride the Andes, zip you know, back and forward across the Andes. It's, you know, it's a distinctive feature in South America. It's really hard to get east of the Andes in the north because you get into the Amazon and there are no roads. And it's just really not convenient for motorcycle travel at all. In the south, it's not that interesting because you're in, Pat you know, you're in Patagonia, you're in the Pampas, it's flat. So we thought in terms of geography, culture, um, you know, language, perspective, exposure to um, – you know, something different that we hadn't experienced before, just zip, zipping backwards and forwards, you know, back and forth across the Andes, you know, was the was the master plan. And then we just sort of blocked out, you know, so many days here, so many days there, and we kind of filled in the blanks as we went. You guys had a lot of people planning this, a lot of people working on it. You, you took a vehicle as well. You had a van follow you with the driver for the van towing a trailer with uh, like coolers in the trailer and places to charge all your stuff and, and pack all your gear. I mean, it sounds meticulously planned, but you guys have said that maybe the planning didn't work out so well. Uh, well, as one, of the, as one of the people that helped plan it, uh, I can certainly agree with that. We started off, um, Pablo Badillo and I probably did most of the the route planning combining both, you know, on the one hand, our own experience of that part of the world and, and the list of places that we all wanted to go. That was one input. 
the other one was recognizing that you know we're, we're not experts in those places so we kind of tapped into the the broader network of um people that we knew um Luis Alejandro Reis in in Colombia runs a, an adventure outfitter he helped us plan places to go that wouldn't lead us off in down some mountain track into the FARC territory or something up there. So that was, he helped us do that in, in Ecuador, we had a group, uh, the sort of BMW riders association called the Brosters that sort of came with us and helped us, you know, really just find parts of Ecuador that we, you know, we probably wouldn't, we, we may have found at random. Certainly they helped us find places that, that were interesting in, in, Peru, we were kind of on our own, um, which was all different experience. In Bolivia, <laughs> uh, we had a guy called uh, Sergio Balivian, who's got long, as a photographer, has got a long history of, uh, in fact, his ancestors are were a part of the military and political leadership of the country back in the 19th century. He knew the country very well, and he, he did a great job of kind of telling us, giving us some clues as to where to go in, um, in Bolivia. And then, you know, after that, we either knew the sort of knew where we we're going. Uh, Pablo's from Argentina, you know, we had a good knowledge of Chile, but still the serendipity is a huge thing on some of the most remarkable experiences we had were almost certainly ones that were not planned that were, you know, accidentally brilliant or accidentally disastrous. Um, um, so, you know, we had a, a blocked out plan and some r- r- kind of general idea of, and some sort of target and places to stay and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, as 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 Fun said, it's not an adventure if it goes according to plan, and then we had lots of things that did not. So. But I mean, the whole idea of planning is that you you're organized, you you feel like you're in control. But I'm, I mean, I think that quickly faded away for you by the sounds of it uh, on the trip. Even the first day, I mean, the first day started out. Uh, I think it was said um, that it was supposed to be uh, sort of um, an easing into the trip, and it was pouring rain. It turned out to be something completely different. Uh, yeah, it was our first day that we had the, I, I think might, what might have been our hardest ride going out to that lunch spot. Um, they had a fresh cut path through a farm and it was raining and it was mud and slop. And uh, we were two to two hours in and we're, we're up to our eyeballs in adventure. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, I think, you know, the first two countries, you're close to the equator, you were close to the Caribbean and were basically tropical storms for it didn't rain all day, but when it did rain, it rained. I mean, it was just torrential. And, um, you know, then you get through it and you dry out after an hour of riding. But, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty, uh, but I think, you know, we had, we had one, one person went home with a broken ankle and we had a fair number of mechanical issues along the way and we didn't have every route planned. And because of the, you know, medical emergency, we rerouted uh, to a place we didn't want. We got thrown out of Ecuador effectively because it didn't have the right papers for the van. Uh, so that didn't, that, that wasn't the route we planned. Um, you know, the wind in Patagonia was, we knew it's always windy there for various, you know, reasons we can explain, but it was, even the locals said it was unheard of level of, uh, you know, speed of wind that we rode through. And at one point, we just had to like hunker down for a day. We couldn't. We couldn't ride. You, you would be blown over at the to ride on a, a deep gravel dirt road with a you know an eighty mile an hour crosswind is not something any of us knew how to do. I mean, I don't think the physics even allowed. You know, there's no way to do it. So we just laid the bikes down and just sat down for five hours until the wind died down. You literally just flop uh, the bikes over so they don't get blown over. Yeah, you could if you put the bike 
with the side stand upwind, it would be just blown over in like a piece of like a child's toy. You had to put it either on the ground or with the side stand downwind. Otherwise, you know, an 80 mile an hour wind on the side of a big GS motorbike, that's a lot of windage. And it would just, so when you try to ride down a dirt road, um, nobody trained for it. You can't train for it. Everybody tried to invent a technique for it because we didn't, we had no idea how to do it. Um, we managed it for a while, but then when the gravel gets too deep, there's no lateral traction. Uh, you can't lean the bike into the wind because the bike just slips out from under you. Um, so we just, Hey, we can't do this. We stopped and hoped the wind would die down from 80 to 60. <laughs> so we could actually ride. But yeah. You planned to film it. You, you had uh, a film, well, one person at least assigned to do the filming, and Alphonse, you were charged with, as you said, taking the photographs for it. So let's just talk about some of the difficulties there involved. I know there's difficulties that you found filming it, but what about photography? Did you find that it was, did it seem like it was more than what you expected? Um, no, I, I, well, as, as, as part of what I do for a living, and that's chase down people on motorcycles and shoot them. Um, I, I didn't find it difficult really. It was, it was something that, uh, I've gotten used to do. Um, what was difficult or different was that I did it for 65 days in, in a row. Every day was like a press launch. It was always, it was one shoot after another. And, um, and, and there, but there was also no, not always something I knew what was ahead to knowing where I was going to shoot. You know, the X factor of what I'm looking for and where I'm going to shoot is with a gamble. And, um, but I had a lot of days to make that up. If, if one day wasn't, wasn't so good for imagery, I had 40 others. Is there a difference between shooting photographs and filming in that photographs, I'm imagining this, that with shooting photographs, you're capturing sort of moments uh, that would have been lost otherwise. Whereas with a film, you're sort of looking for beautiful spots and then setting it up and saying, okay, everybody ride through here. Correct. Right. You would, uh, shooting video and, and taking stills are, are, are different beasts. Um, because in that, in capturing that singular moment with a with a still photograph is easy to do. Um, you can in a race scenario you can get a guy to do a wheelie and he can crash. But if I got a if I got that frozen moment of him doing the wheelie, he's a hero. But when he falls down on video, uh, well, it's otherwise. Well, well, the the filming became frustrating at, at some points, didn't it? Well, it became frustrating because not a not was in was interested in making circular passes and and doing things like that um where sometimes this the scenery didn't allow for us or, or the locations didn't allow for us to make multiple passes like hey go down the road turn around come back do it again uh, maybe we're out of we're out of time uh, in our day um or the roads are too narrow you wouldn't be possible um sometimes so it's frustrating I, I, I on just, both sides yeah i can chime in yeah. as well because I, I i think Absolutely. one of the you know, if you were to sort of say, you know, what worked and what didn't work. One of the things that created tension very quickly, let's put it that way, on the trip was was the idea of filming. I think we all knew we were going to film it. And I think we all, almost all of us had kind of a naive notion that, you know, Sterling would circulate with his camera, we'd do our thing, and then he'd take some cool shots and we're done. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, when you want to try and produce a nice finished product that shows us in the right environment, you know, blah, blah. 
Then we have to wait for Sterling to get in front, wait for him to set up, ride by him, stop, wait for you know, wait for him to catch us up. Or as as Fun said, you know, sometimes well that didn't work. There was a truck in the way, or the weather wasn't right, or something. Go back and do it again. And you know, f- for a while that sounds sort of cute and interesting, but a few days in, you go, you know what? That takes a lot of time, and we're driving now. We're riding after dark and not getting where we were trying to go. And a lot of us were, you know, very frustrated that the demands of filming started to become, you know, quite a drain on people's uh, you know, experience. And whereas, whereas we'd like to just be riding in the environment, enjoying the views, talking to the people, sampling the food. Now we're thinking in terms of, you know, post-production, did it look right? Are we going to look good on film? Am I photogenic? You know, is my hair nice? You know, that sort of stuff. And, and that's annoying. So I think within two days, we'd sort of agreed that we, we naturally fell into two or three groups anyway, just because of the logistics and the, uh, comfort level of different riders. And we kind of assumed, decided pretty soon, pretty quickly that Sterling would go with one of these groups per day. So two thirds of the group would not be messing around with filming and one third would. And we'd sort of rotate, you know, our, t- our, our time in the barrel. Uh, and, you know, generally speaking, that was a pretty good recipe. And and I, I will say, as one of the people that was probably one of the most vocal uh, critics of the process of filming and, and what a, in some cases it was annoying, some cases it was dangerous because we ended up, you know, riding at night in circumstances we shouldn't have been. Um, you know, I'm thrilled there's a movie. You know, when I see it and watch it, you know, I'm, hmm. I'm delighted at the extraordinary work that Sterling has done to create this, you know, experience that is really way more interesting than just us looking at us ourselves. It's, it clearly is something that is of uh, of value and of interest and of beauty beyond just the people who were there looking at their home movie, right? I mean, it's a, it's a great uh, thing that he's done. But at the time... I would cheerfully have, have, you know, taken his camera away from him and, and <laughs> tell him to stop, right? Because it was annoying. But, but, and uh, if you had to do it again, though, would you cancel that part? Would you just say it's not worth it? Oh, God. No, no comment. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to hear that answer. <laughs> well, Alphonse, for you know. even as well. I mean, like, you, you had a different experience than everyone else there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Correct. you know, so if you had to do it again, would you just skip the photography or maybe do it a little more laid back, you know, shoot what, what comes up and leave it at that? Oh, we would always like to have more time. Um, but, I, I, of course, I'd go back. I'd do it again. I would. I'd have no problem. You'd, with you'd still run ahead. You'd still, you know, go through all the work to get the photographs that you got. Right. Even when I'm on vacation, I do that. A lot of people do this when they go and they do some sort of trip. They want to document it and they think everything. And, and often people will be heading out by themselves or with one other person. They'll think, okay, I'm going to get some video and I'm going to get a bunch of photographs and I'm going to do a blog. And that really eats into the adventure. Yeah, oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I, I think I, if I was to sort of, when I reflect on it, I would, the, the objection I had, and, and Jim and I, and he'll, he'll admit this, I mean, we had kind of stand-up arguments about this stuff on at least three or four occasions. And I, I think the conclusion I came to was, I said, look, this trip is interesting enough. Uh, wherever we go, whatever we do is going to look great. It's going to be interesting on film because not many people have done this. So let's film what we do. 
let's not go and do stuff to film, right? So if we get to a place and say, oh, let's go right up that hill and that'll look really great on film. I said, but that's not the way we're going. You know, we're going that way. Okay, well, let's not do that. So there are a few occasions when the great temptation was to go off and ride a particular road or do a particular thing because it would look good on film. But it's interesting when I go back and look at the four episodes of film, very little of the stuff that we did that I would consider to be stuff that was done just to make it, just to be looked good, actually made it into the um, end movie. So clearly what we did and the experience we had and the kind of interpersonal parts of it and the, the rest of it was in and of itself interesting enough without us going off and trying to find a particular pass or a, or a spectacular backdrop, or let's go up to Mount Illimani and, and get that snow cap. You know, the stuff we did without that was still plenty interesting for a, for a book and for a, and for a film. You would rather have had it filmed as sort of a reality show, I guess, than a feature film. <laughs> no comment. No, it, it, it was interesting because, you know, what do you want from something like that? Do you want, do you want a, a glossy travelogue? Do you want a, reality or do you want the reality movie of the experiences of 12 gritty guys arguing with each other or do you want uh an educational uh movie for potential um adventure riders as to what to bring and what to do and what to you know mistakes made and all that kind of stuff you know we i think we got a little bit of all of those in there but it wasn't any one of those things and, and i think we were all trying to figure out what the hell we were trying to film, was it educational or is it national geographic or was it, um, you know, uh, big brother, right? I mean, it, who knows what it could have been. Well, what do you think it ended up as? What, what did the film, what does it show? What does it showcase? I think it showcases the, the, the general, the experience we had, the places we saw and the, and the people we met very, very well. It, it says enough about, um, the rea- the, the sort of, um, personal challenges we all face for different reasons, medical, emotional, interpersonal. Um, and it tells you a lot about what it would take to do a trip like that and what worked and what didn't work. You know, if you were thinking about doing such a thing yourself, you could certainly watch that and, and learn a lot as to, you know, well, I'm not going to do that, you know, and, um, and learn. So I, I think it, it, it wasn't the, you know, reality show, uh, thing we weren't doing we weren't doing stuff just to to be controversial it wasn't orange candy choppers right i mean this was you know it was filming it was filming us doing what we were doing and being who we were so um no it, it, overall i still did an amazing job and uh, you know and um you know everyone should watch the movie so there's good parts in there with you guys arguing and stuff the stuff that sells uh, uh yeah <laughs> We're going to take a one-minute break, but when we come back, we're talking about the support van that was so full of gear they didn't need, it would have been impossible to fit a broken motorcycle inside. The best way to advance your riding skills is to stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before you. I mean, why waste time bumbling around and chance developing poor riding habits when you can go to a professional outfit like PSSOR? PSSOR is Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, and that's the off-road division of Puget Sound Safety, which has been providing world-class motorcycle training to new and avid motorcyclists since 1996. 
That's a long time. Now, Brett Tax is one of the owners. You know Brett from our Rider Skill segments here on Adventure Rider Radio. PSSOR is located in Washington, but they have um, rentals available. So if you're coming from another location, you can fly in, take a course using their bikes, even rent a bike afterwards for a trip of your own using your new skills. And their instructional classes vary from everything from off-road, while street, off-road, dual sport, and adventure bikes. You can get it all through them if you contact them and, and let them know what you're after. They also do adventure training tours, which is where you, you sign up for a real adventure, like doing the Washington Backcountry Discovery Route, and then you learn on that route while you ride their bike. So drop by their website, www.pssor. That's www.pssor. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. I think some of the most effective changes you can make on your bike are the simple ones, like foot pegs, for instance. Now, I've been riding on IMS rally pegs this summer, and I absolutely love them. I mean, they've made a huge difference over the stock pegs. Not only are they constructed of 17-4 stainless steel, they also use the certified heat treating process, but these made-in-the-USA pegs are guaranteed for life. Now, that's something you don't hear very often. There's a reason for it, because To have a product that you're going to guarantee for life, you have to know as a manufacturer that it is bulletproof before you say that, before you offer that kind of guarantee. Well, IMS has been around since 1976, building parts just like this full line of adventure pegs they now make for adventure motorcycles. Designed for adventure, built to last a lifetime, IMS foot pegs. Drop by the website www.imsproducts.com. That's www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, just throw it in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. And now back to Colin and Alphonse with Expedition 65. You had the, as I mentioned, the van and the trailer following you with your gear, but you had trouble with that, I guess, right from the start with it being overloaded. Can you talk about that? Um, what can I say about the van being overloaded? It was uh, everyone brought uh, every creature comfort that we uh, we thought we wanted. Um, Jim originally set out that we, uh, just knowing that we had limited space and, you know, vehicle and 15 guys and... Um, you know, everyone brings two duffel bags. Um, and, uh, but then there was stuff we picked up along the way. There's stuff that we brought that didn't fit in two duffel bags. And, uh, we no longer had room to carry a, a spare vehicle or, or pick up a mo- broken motorcycle if that was going to be the case. And, uh, but we did have, uh, moments where we had guys riding on top of <laughs> all the luggage inside. It was nearly to the roof. You get to the end, though, of course, yeah, you can carry a lot less. We should have carried a lot less. Yeah, I, th- I think one of, one of the key, when we, if you look at the differences between what we planned and what happened, we we originally had the idea we would camp about half the days, and we kind of looked at where we were going, right. and we figured that we'd just go find a place, and, and to the best of our ability, we had, we so when people said, oh, I'm going to camp 30 out of 60 days, most of us said, hey, I want my cot, I want my best sleep, I want a bigger tent. You know, if I'm going to do a lot of this stuff, I want to be, um, you know, comfortable. In reality, we camped 10 nights. 
So because in South America, there's nowhere near the same kind of camping culture that there is in North America. I mean, you go anywhere. I was, you know, was up in Washington and British Columbia. There are campsites all over the place, everywhere. State campsites, luxury ones, small ones, back, you know. In South America, they looked at as if we had lost our minds, the idea of camping. And uh, they thought we were nuts because there are hotels and hostels for $10 or $6 or $3 on one night. Hmm. You know, why, why would you even take the tent out of its bag for the, when you can stay somewhere for $3? Um, so there was, there were, that was a big mismatch between the next, you know, plan. And, and as Fon said, because we planned to camp a lot, we brought a lot of stuff. And the trailer, a big part of the trailer was like a camp kitchen. I mean, it had, you know, cooking facilities and gas and water and all manner of stuff. And, you know, if you'd ask me if I did it again, would I, I'd say no, bring a one person tent in case you need it and bring a big pickup and maybe a trailer to carry a broken bike, but certainly nowhere near the amount of gear that we actually brought. What was the idea of the van and the trailer? I mean, a lot of people do this trip without any sort of backup, just on a motorcycle with their own gear. Why bring the, the, all that extra equipment? Because we all thought we were too old and soft to, to do the ride you just described. I mean, frankly, I think, you know, we've all, it's like, oh, I've been there, done that. You know, we've done, we've all done at one time in our motorbiking or traveling lives that trip, you know, strap on a spare tire and a, and a bivouac tent and, and wing it. Um, we just didn't think that was what we were all up for on this trip, frankly. And we just said, Hey, we need a bit more in the way of creature comforts. And one is what, what Scott Brady calls the cascade effect. You make one decision and it leads to another decision and a third, and a, you know, a series of decisions that lead you to a van and a trailer. Um, in if we'd been a bit more realistic, we probably said, look, we would have camped 10 nights. Let's all bring a one person tent, stuff it in one pannier. Um, you know, don't even, you know, bring a jet boil between three of us and then we're good. But um, that was not the trip we envisaged, but it sort of was the trip we had. How many borders did you cross? Oh, God, we, um, that's a good question. We, I, I, we got crossed the border picture. 13 times. Yeah, that's right. 13, that's 13 yeah. border crossings, and we, we went back and forth across the Andes about, I think, 21 times. Yeah. So what um, did you guys learn about border crossings? I mean, I, I remember seeing a reference about uh, custom vanity plates um, being a problem. Oh, yeah. or, or the fact that <laughs> you even mentioned about the van being sort of kicked out because you didn't have the right documentation. Oh, yeah. I, I don't, my, my view is that if you follow the pretty simple rules, it's a fairly... Um, you know, painless process. You know, you arrive, you you enter a country, you fill out a temporary vehicle import document because they assume you're going to leave with it. You do the normal, you know, Im immigration, immigration kind of passport stuff, and you're on your way. Um, that's generally that sort of work pretty much everywhere. Sometimes it took 20 minutes, sometimes it took five hours, you know, depending on the, uh, or more, depending on, you know, the one border crossing was just a, two military people and a big ledger and pens and all that kind of stuff. And others, it's highly computerized, totally integrated, um, you know, on a high volume border. So we had the, the difficulties we had. One was 
we arrived at the first crossing out of Colombia with the wrong van paperwork. The originals of the documents had been left in, in Cartagena and we'd left with the copies instead of the other way around. And, uh, you know, that led to a whole series of events that got us thrown out of Ecuador. Um, you know, we thought we could just press on and sort of sort it out later. And that was not the right strategy. We should have left the van there for, you know, 24 hours for someone to FedEx the documents down and do it properly, but we didn't. And, um, you know, at, at one point they impounded the van because it was illegally in Ecuador, which it was technically, and then said, you're out of here tonight and threw us out basically. So, but you know, generally I think that would not be on one of my, um, you know, list of things to worry about if someone wanted to plan a trip like that, you know, take your bike documents, take a passport, you'll be, it'll be good. Um, yeah. Bring more patients. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was a reference uh, as well to even if a, a bike, if you have a loan on a bike, you have to have paperwork from the bank. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that was, I think the, va um, I think a couple of the vehicles had, uh, you had to essentially, you had to prove you had the right to have that bike. So if you didn't actually have your name on the title, then that created issues. So yeah, I mean, Oh, so it was Again, leased or something like that then? Yeah, yeah. If it was leased or, or you, it was financed and it wasn't your name on the title, then, you know, that would create a problem. So, yeah, and that added a bit of complexity. But if you've got the right bank documentation, you're good. But word to the wise, if, you know, if you can find a way of getting your name on the title before you leave, then things will go more swimmingly, obviously. But even then, it wasn't, wasn't the end of the world. It was, you know, part of the rich experience of dealing with Latin American cultures. Some of them, not all those countries like each other, you know, going from Peru to Bolivia, they're not very cooperative. They just, they don't want to make it easy because they're, they're sort of, I don't know, they've got uh, dislikes that go back to, you know, pre uh, independence and then they don't, they're not very cooperative. Chile and Argentina, then they're, you know, they're trying to integrate their systems. They, they co-locate their customs people. They've got the same computer systems. It's a piece of cake. Chile, Peru, Peru, Ecuador, not so much. What about the vanity plate or the custom plates, the problems you found with that? Yeah, I, the plate on my bike is Dakar, D-A-K-A-R. And, and um, Tiberio's got one that's, what's it called? It's like a... GS off road or something like that. And it looks like eggs road the way, anyway, so they, they couldn't. <laughs> and in, in Chile, they said, well, where's the number? And I said, well, it doesn't have a number. Well, no, but all plates have to have a number on. No, they don't. Well, but my computer system won't work unless there's a number in this field. Ah, well, put a number in it. I don't care. So the third person to look at the bike noticed that the year of registration, it was 05, 18 or whatever the expiry of the, plate was and so so this added that to the number and we were to the dakar 0518 we're in i said well am i going to get the thing out now well pff, they didn't care it was like well okay we'll worry about that later and did you have any trouble no nope no i mean again some of those people want some of the people work in the border they you know they want to do it by the book or they're you know others just want to get their day finished and get you out of there and um you know it depends who you meet on that day whether they're they want to be the petty official or want to be the um, helpful person. It just, uh, you know, people are people. There's sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. 
And and as far as, you know, problems that we just talked about the border, what about dealing with police? Um, they can often be referred to as uh, less than trustworthy. What did you guys find? Um, I, I was um, amazed. You know, all, all you hear about Central American and South American police is that they're, you know, venal, corrupt and incompetent. And I think for the most part, our experience was exactly the opposite. And it may have been, and I, I thought long and hard about why it, that was. Um, but generally speaking, we had, you know, they helped us get a dozen bikes through a small town. They, without hitting anybody, they stopped us getting robbed. They, you know, were helping doing crowd management, traffic management. They were generally, uh, one incident, we stopped at a gas station, uh, having come, spent the day coming down toward, to, towards Lima. We were just north of Lima on the way from Juarez, um, and stopped for gas, put our bikes with our helmets on, hanging on the mirror, draped our jackets over the bikes and walked into the little convenience store by the gas station to get a drink. And after a few minutes, I mean, the bikes were within our, we could see them, but they were, you know, maybe 50 feet away. And when we got in the, about 10 minutes later, this um, sergeant, you know, paramilitary, policia, green uniform, you know, uh, submachine gun over his shoulder, pulled up and started talking to us and where are you going and what are you guys doing? And, you know, generally just chatting to us. And then he said, Oh, by the way, you've just landed in, you know, one of Peru's most, you know, uh, highest criminality cities and your stuff's not safe. You know, people have been held up at gunpoint for, and had their scooters taken away, right? Let alone a 12 or CCGS. Uh, so, we, oh, so we ran out to, no, no, he said, fine, just finish your drinks. You'll be fine. My sergeant, my, my, uh, Officer and I will guard your stuff. So they basically parked their truck, you know, by the, um, by our, then waited for us to come out and, and, and looked after our stuff for us. They didn't try and rip us off. They didn't, they weren't looking for a bribe. They didn't, uh, anything. And, and I think one of the reasons is, um, partly they realized we're a big group. We've got, you know, big Expedition 65 labels on our bikes. You know, it's clearly a, an event. And, and on the one hand, the little guy, the little policeman is not going to find it very easy to pull you aside and find some, um, you know, excuse to, you know, rip you off because we're just too big a group, too visible. Everyone's looking at us, which means they're looking at him. Um, uh, and I think generally they then realize they want us all. They realize that we're going to report on this experience. I think most of them are proud of where they live and they want us to have a good impression of having been there. And so generally speaking, I, I – I can't say that police all across South America are, you know, brilliantly honest, but the experiences we had, generally speaking, were were, were very positive. Yeah, that's what I wondered. Is it was to do with the group, to do with the decoration on the bikes, the the fact that it, it looks like a, as you said, a big event. Whether that's going to change how how people act. I mean, I think if you're probably traveling alone, it would be a, a completely different experience. I think Absolutely. you're yeah, yeah, totally. I agree. Alphonse, did you find that because you were off on your on your own uh, a lot of the time, did, did you run into any problems? Um, no, no. Luckily, uh, most of the time when I was ahead, it was it was wildly remote, and uh, there was not much to see. Um, but as as often I am the scout, I see some stuff that you know maybe I, I, uh, no one else gets to see. But I didn't encounter any problems. Uh, just more more often wildlife that I wish <laughs> stuff that I more wish that I can get a picture of the other group coming through but 
man, I'm surrounded by sheep. What's this? <laughs> um, I think the, the other thing is that we tried as a plan to avoid big cities for any length of time as well. So we thought we'd have a better experience. We wanted to explore the backcountry and places where we went in the backcountry. We were, you know, we, it, it was like Barnum and Bailey rolling into town. We, we were the show for the day when we rolled in and, and people welcomed us up in arms. They wanted to know who these crazy people, where you're going, you know, they don't dare where did you come from? Where are you going? They don't where are you going? Uh, and, uh, um, you know, we had a great time talking about it. it also, I'll just add one thing. In Lima uh, and across Peru, mm. um, the country is replacing all of its male traffic police with women because the it is felt that men, men are corruptible and women are not. So in, in, in Lima, 90% of the traffic police are, are women. Uh, and it's being spread across the country. We saw them in Cusco and in, in, in all sorts of places because they recognize they've got a, a problem and they're fixing it by having the ladies because they're, they don't, they don't take nonsense and they won't take bribes. Well, from this trip and, and thanks to both of you, uh, you produced an incredible coffee table book called journey to the end of the world. Alphonse taking the photographs and Colin, uh, writing the book. Was this part of the plan? Was, was this in the works from before you left? Yeah, I would say no, no, that we, we did not plan to create a book. Um, we did, um, we knew we'd have photographs and we knew that, that I was, had been planning to write some editorial for the magazines. And, um, so I was, I was conscious that way to take notes and, and think about what, what was going to be said. But, um, I figured I would be doing it in route Colin. uh, as well read as he is, um, and written, uh, he, he put down some words along the way, uh, that the other guys really enjoyed as well as I, but, uh, so it came to the end by the end of the time that we got down to Argentina, we we're like, wow, we should maybe make a book, look into it when we get back. And through Jim's connections, we managed to, uh, meet with Lee at, uh, Octane Press and, and put something together. And what's the idea of the book? Why did you guys put it together? I think, well, I think, you know, the, the, a bunch of reasons. I think a lot of us wanted a, um, kind of memento of the thing. Um, I think Jim, you know, was, was, um, yeah, so very excited about the trip and he helped through connections to Octane Press to put it together. Um, I mean, before we went, Jim and I did talk about, cause I, I, on previous trips I'd done with, um, with Jim, I'd written a kind of a travel journal on a pretty regular basis. And I think Jim knew that I couldn't stop myself just writing about um, where we were because it's a, I, I like to do it. It helps me uh, think about the place I'm going to. And I like to write about things that are not just the, you know, kind of the heroic bike ride part of it, but the kind of cultural experience of where we are. I'm not particularly interested in writing about Oh my God, this big bike on this bad road. And oh my God, we're, we're, we're moto heroes. I'm much more interested in writing about the people we meet, the places we go and, and sort of the, the things that you wouldn't normally think about, um, you know, when you go as a tourist and I wrote, um, I ended up writing 60 blog posts, which we, um, you know, kind of re-edited and turned it into a book. So with, with my blog essentially and funds as uh, 
uh, photographs, you know, it seemed to fit pretty well. I think in the book it says that you really like to write these stories just to bug your friends who are still working for a living. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm sure works. (laughs) is undeniably true. And some of them, uh, I just had a, Yes, yes, that that is undoubtedly true. But it, yeah, it's my it's my own. You know, when you're you have a lot of time, people say, well, when do you have time to write this? You're on this trip, you know. I said, well, you're in your helmet for hours during the day, and uh, uh, you know, you're. Um, I have plenty of time to think about what to say because I'm I'm sitting in my helmet all day, and I can't write in my helmet, obviously. But when I get somewhere, it doesn't take me long to take you know, a few ideas that came to me as I was riding along and just sort of, um, jot them down. Um, so no, it's, it's something I enjoy doing and it, it, it fitted well with the idea of just re-editing it and turning it into a, uh, a documentary. I think the only difficulty at the end of it was because we all were not all together all of the time, there were some of the places we went and some of the things I'd written about where either Fonz wasn't there cause he was, you know, off in some other, you know, we were on some other mission or wasn't necessarily photographing the things that I was thinking about, or I'd write something three days later and he'd go, Oh, we should photograph that. Hmm. Um, so yeah, there was some difficulty in trying to match the text with the photos, but it, it worked out pretty well. Do you think if somebody else that had went on this trip, wrote the book, it would be different? Absolutely. How? Uh, uh I think somebody, I think Fonz said this, you know, everybody's on their own journey, right? I mean, what the reasons right. we all, the reasons we all decided to go on this trip, you know, there, there's a different reason for every person. There's, you know, there's one fellow who, you know, was, you know, they're all kind of thinking bucket list kind of things, but you know, one guy was, you know, lost a child um, earlier on in his life and kind of felt like his mission was to live his life to the fullest because his daughter couldn't. There are others that are trying to get this done. There was one guy whose wife was pregnant with their first child, and he said, if I don't do this now, I'm going to be waiting 15 years to do this. And there are others that are uh, different characters, different views. I think some would have written more about you know, the bikes and the roads and the technology and the, you know, others, you know, would have written about different things. I, I say, I try and I, I deliberately don't write about, um, you know, big bikes and, and bad roads, but you know, maybe others in the group, that's all they would have written about. I don't know. It would, it certainly, everybody would have described a different experience to them. Some are introverts, some are extrovert. they look at different things in different ways. Um, so yeah, I, I think, any one of us writing the book would have been, it would have been a wholly different, um, I mean, it would in the same places. We maybe would have had some of the same, you know, wow moments. Um, certainly we all had some of the same scared shitless moments. Um, and, and they're almost impossible to photograph anyway. So, <laughs> so yeah, it, yeah, it would definitely have been a different book. That's life though, isn't it? I mean, we do, we, we're all on our own journey. Even if you're with somebody in the, in the closest sense, you're still sort of on your own journey doing your own thing. 
Um, but, a but a motorcycle trip is, I mean, it's different things to different people, but I think the, the, the thing you see glorified the most with motorcycle trips, which I don't really see in this is, is just what you said. It's the bike. It's the motorcycle as, um, as not only just a vehicle, but as an iconic thing of, of, of something that, um, that sort of, uh, epitomizes adventure itself. It's the actual bike more so than mixing with the cultures. Uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, well, it, it depends I think if you read, um, I don't know, an Overland Journal uh, or Outside Magazine or, you know, those things that, that take people out, a, a lot of them are, you know, they've got a mixture of writing about the culture of crossing Kenya or something, right? I mean, you, you can't cross Kenya and only talk about the, 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 the uh, Mercedes wagon you're in, right? I mean, that would be of no interest whatsoever. You've got to talk about Kenya. You can't help it, right? So the same here. I mean, I I just wanted to talk about. In fact, I said several cases. My biggest fear on this trip was not was being surrounded by so many gringos that I wouldn't actually talk to anybody um, outside the group. So I was deliberately almost every day, for, you know, making sure that I went out and talked to somebody as many people as I could, you know, that were not the, my traveling companions, I'm going to see them later in America. They're not part of the, well, they're part of the experience, but, um, yeah, I want to go and meet the traffic cops and the, and the, uh, there was a guy that funds documented, a guy in Wamachuka who, who yeah. I, I took his photograph. We had, I had my photograph taken with him and he wanted to copy the photograph. So I said, fine, give me your address. I'll send you a copy. He said, no, I want one now. In, in my poor Spanish and his good Spanish, obviously. And he pointed to a Photoshop on the corner of the, uh, the square where we, he kind of marched us over there and said, like, pull the thing out of your camera and, and go and, and get a picture. So we basically, this guy took a, you know, printed a copy of my photograph so he could leave with one on that day. I mean, that to me was a, a very memorable part of that trip it was this afternoon I spent with this guy, just talking to him about his life and where he came from and what his job was and what he'd retired from. And, and, and having the experience of, of getting his photograph printed and Fonzie taking pictures of that. So, I mean, that was, that's, that's an important part of the trip, whether it's on a motorbike or a car or a bicycle, right? I mean, that was, um, that was important to me. Well, let's talk about the bikes for a minute. At one point I saw in the book, it said something about uh, BMWs being stock or something. And I wasn't sure if that was a reference to you were talking about what you and Alphonse were riding or was everyone riding stock BMWs? Most of us were on BMW 1200 GS bikes. The about half were on the new model, the water cooled one, and half were on the previous generation bike. And there was one guy Sterling on, a, on an F800. Uh, but we, they were not. I mean, they were stock in the sense that they're, um, you know, off the production line from BMW. We didn't do any, um, you know, they're not special in any way. But anybody that is in this kind of adventure biking world will obviously say that none of these two bikes are identical because everyone has chosen to outfit them in some way that's personal to them, not just in terms of color and, and stuff, but I mean, comfort, suspension, luggage, you know, navigation, communication, everyone had their own little set of stuff that was their comfort zone on the bike to make it, to make it safe and comfortable lights particularly. Um, so they're stock in the sense that they're not, the engine wasn't modified and that kind of stuff. They weren't souped up, but they were all kitted out, um, personalized 
by the, the the owner because that's you know to make it comfortable for themselves. What sort of mechanical problems did you have? Uh, we we took the van was full of spares, and we used almost none of them. We took all the wrong spares. <laughs> um, we took all the things you'd expect to take. We took brake pads, air filters, oil filters, uh, emergency uh, fuel pump connections. We took master cylinders. We took uh, all manner of stuff that we'd expect to break gear, le- you know, uh, shift levers, brake levers, all things that we th- assume. None of that failed. The the major failure was shock absorbers. We had probably a dozen. Um, you know, we chose the road less traveled. We pounded those bikes. So by the time we got into northern Peru, southern, you know, sort of by the time we got into uh, Bolivia, and certainly through Bolivia, the, we had, I don't know, we'd already had six um, I think shock absorber failures and uh, and had to go to all sorts of strange lengths to get replacements. Uh, Were these stock we shocks? Uh, probably half of them mix. Yeah. Yeah. There were some were BMW standard and some were Touratech. And um, what was failing after them? Seals. I mean, just the old, just you know, you pounded the shock so much that oil's leaking out of the shocks. And so just the, the punishment they got um, – was more than they could take. And you're not running heavy loads, though. I assume that all of your load, or almost all of your load, is in the van and trailer. Yeah, but folks, are st- I mean, I think everybody, uh, certainly I tried to make sure that if I didn't see the van that night, because we didn't always, we weren't always in the same place where the van ended up, um, then at least I could either stay in a hotel or a hostel or pitch a tent. So I always carried, you know, a tent and a sleeping bag and, clothes and you know some gear and i wasn't as heavy and others had a lot more you know they're used to carrying a bit more equipment than that so they weren't they weren't massively loaded but they weren't stripped uh everyone still had panniers and gear and you know fun funds and and sterling are carrying god knows how many kilograms of photo gear apart from anything else um we were pretty well loaded um but yeah, as I said, we took we took the road less traveled, and it was um, it was not freeway. Do you have any stories that stick in mind that sort of um, you know uh, would would really pull somebody in for the book? I, I think you know for the whole trip, I think a couple of things you know stuck in my mind as being you know those moments that that you really remember as something you could never have planned, and it just you know happened that way. Uh, one was. We were in the in the sort of central highlands of Peru, uh, aiming for a, a little town called Payasca, and we just sort of picked it at random as a as a meeting place, and we went through a town called Angas Marca, which just ha- mm. which is a completely unremarkable town. I mean, it's just sort of a a town that you wouldn't find on a tourist map. You wouldn't find it in a tour guide. It was in a part of the of Peru that was I guarantee you almost unseen by tourists because it's just so inconvenient from anywhere to get in and out of Peru, right? So, and we went into Angus Marker and it was the 31st anniversary of the founding of the town. And we couldn't get through town. All the roads were blocked. And the entire town was out there. The half the town was parading in front of the other half and then taking turns to parade back in front of each other. Every school, every culture, every, every office, every policeman, every shop had got someone in the parade. And we had, and, and then they just, sucked us into that thing and 
surrounded us at one point in funds and Bill Hathaway were surrounded by dancers. I, I tried to get them out of there by sort of breaking this mm-hmm. circle and they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't, and then they surrounded me. I mean, we, it took us like two hours to get out of that town and without being rude. Right. And, um, you couldn't have planned that. You couldn't have. And in Bolivia, we're traveling through Southern Bolivia to a little town and there were a bunch of guys working on the road, uh, just with, with, Pick at one 35 year old, you know, backhoe and all these pickaxes, probably making the road worse, you know, in terms of its road surface. And they stopped us and they wanted to, they essentially wanted a bribe. They said, no, you can't, we, we, we need a, to- they're going to, there's a toll on this road. And there's probably 40 of these guys and us. And we said, what are you talking about? There's no toll on this road. And even with the Spanish speakers, said, no, they, they would not let us pass without contributing to their community fund, quote unquote. And um, so we haggled for a long time and we settled on $8, I think it was, by the time we finally, for 40 of these guys, um, got $8 out of us in order to let us pass on this road. And it was sort of good natured. No one was going to attack us with pickaxes. But, you know, it's not, again, you couldn't plan that. And, and it was, you know, one of those moments you remember for the rest of your life. It was a complete delight in the end of the day. No one got hurt. Um, we got to the next town and the, those are funds. And I were one of the ladies there, um, said she wanted a photograph taken with me. So we did that. And then it dawned on us afterwards. She just wanted to get paid for it. And then was asking like, I don't know, $10 or something. I said, yeah, I gave her like 25 cents, which is a lot of money in Bolivia. And in the end she attacked, I mean, I was walking away from her. She was like pounding on my back. She was hurling insults and, and, um, you know, I, it was, it was an interesting experience and, uh, you get to see. <laughs> Why not just pay her the 10 bucks? <laughs> <laughs> the principles, principles are at stake. You mean because I the next the guy that comes along is going to be taken? Uh, totally. That would be, uh, but it, it was, you know, it's a, it's a glimpse into that one town that, that she, she and all of her friends were, were three sheets to the wind drunk you know in the shade of the church and so they were not thinking rationally um but you know it was just i i there's probably hundred stories i mean of just of things you come across that we didn't sit down in the planning meeting and say well let's try and do this but the adventure is when you you know come across all sorts of things that you don't expect and didn't plan for and and um you know, wouldn't find in Portland, Oregon. Like that camp that we had on the beach when we first came into, uh, into Peru, right? Oh yeah. 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 The hippie camp. Yeah. We found a place, um, near Chiclayo when we got thrown out of Ecuador, we were in the wrong place. So we said we didn't know where we were. So we just rolled into a town and And winged uh, it and winged it. And we found this place all down the beach are a series of these, sort of burning man kind of camp set up, which I think must, have, must be used like for summer holidays or, you know, the equivalent of spring break in Peru. And nobody was there. We rolled into this place run by a guy who was a Japanese Peruvian. And it was truly horrible. I mean, it was just like the, there were pillows in there that had, you know, mice living in them. And there was also, I mean, it was just horrible. But then we thought, babe, let's go. So we settled in and, and the guy cooked us a dinner. He just, within an hour, he'd come back from town with these two massive, like 20 pound fish that he just proceeded to cook one in kind of a Peruvian fashion and one in a Japanese fashion. And 
and we had a great time riding on the beach and we, and we had a lovely time and the guy was fantastic. Uh, but if you'd, you know, we were trying to, we were joking about, you know, how many stars accommodation was it? And it was clearly zero stars, but, <laughs> but it, it, the, the question was, if this is a refugee camp, how many stars would it have? And, <laughs> and the answer would be like one, it's like a one star refugee camp uh, uh, was probably the best you could describe it as. Uh, but we had a, we had a blast. We had a, we I don't had get a fire. Is this guy renting out space there? Is that what it is? Is it a camp? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a like a walled, like Fort Sumter, you know, with like a with a you know a wooden fence around it. And interior to that, there were areas where you could pitch a tent, or we had these pyramids made out of huge, um, like bamboo like chambers. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, if you were in Sedona, you'd think the forces were being, you know, concentrated by the pyramids, but. I, I have no idea what his business model is, who normally stays there, but it was empty. Nobody was there. It was clearly dirty, but we just said, Hey, we're tired. We'll say, so, and it, we had a great time. Alphonse, how did you find this trip or did it affect you in any way? Um, sort of change your life or anything like that. Did you get something like that from this trip? Uh, I think the largest, the, the biggest thing that I took away were the people, the, 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 the the connections that I made through Jim, through the people like Colin and, and the bills and Chris and guys that I did not know that are now like brothers to me, you know, there are places that you go and places that I've been, you know, you travel along, eventually roads are roads, but it's, it's, if it's not the place where you're going, uh, that you're going to learn about it's, it's the people. And I, that, that to me is the, the most uh, valuable thing I took away from it. A year later, we're still talking to each other, communicating through WhatsApp. We got a, a group chat, and we still talk to each other daily. What about you, Colin? I th- certainly, I, I, I double down on 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 Franz's comment. There, we're certainly blood brothers. Uh, whereas we didn't really know. I mean, I'd met some of the half the guys ahead of time, but not really that well. Uh, you know, if you travel with somebody for sixty five days or more you inevitably reveal something of yourself, you, you know, that you, that you wouldn't otherwise discover about people, how people deal under stress, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we know each other better because of that than I think most people do in a social business. You know, you don't, you don't get that from meeting someone at the golf club, right? You, you get it when you, you're under stress on a, on a mountain road at night and worrying about your safety and looking after each other. So that's, that's certainly something that, I would double that. The other thing is, you know, when you look at other cultures, I don't want to be patronizing, but, you know, it's easy to for many people to look at when they see poor people and say, you know, if they worked hard, they wouldn't be poor and all that kind of stuff. But clearly there are many people in South America who have living conditions that it doesn't matter. I mean, these aren't stupid people. They're just in a circumstance that that doesn't allow them to, you know, achieve the same standard of living that, that we, we do. So I think there's a sense of gratitude that most of us ended up with because we saw into into other people's lives in ways that, you know, we, we were born in in a place and at a time that enables, you know, to be comfortable and well off and safe and all the rest of it, which other people don't have the opportunity. So I think that's something that I think, you know, you have to enable you to put other things in perspective, how other people live in America and around the world. So I think that sense of gratitude for where we are and, and that sort of bonding with the group, they were the two things that I'd kind of say in answer to your question. Well, I want to wrap things up with some tips 
um, that you guys would have for someone else looking to, to travel to South America. But first, I was going to ask Alphonse, do you have any tips for the average rider for photography? And I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but it's something that people love to do. And especially nowadays with Instagram, everybody wants to be a better photographer. Oh boy. Let me see. Um, uh, uh, first thing that comes to mind is don't park where you, if you want to, if you want to go to a landmark park in a way that when you stop and you take a picture of the landmark, you can step back 10 more steps and take a picture of your bike in the landmark too. Um, then you're, you, you remember what you're riding. Not that you would, won't but uh you tell a little bit about tell a little bit more about all that you're doing on that trip but that's just nitty-gritty about photography it's interesting that you didn't just go to equipment because i think most people will think that oh you're going to tell me what camera to take you're going to tell me what lens to use when i'm shooting but i mean that's that's not really what it's about is it no it isn't right a lot of one that is often the first question i get asked what's the what's a good camera what what camera should i take or what are you using uh what what are you carrying on your bike? And uh, often I'm carrying a lot of cameras, but it, it the, what camera it is doesn't matter. The better, the best camera you have is, is the one that's in your hand. Uh, even if it's your phone, you can take a great photograph. Uh, composition is more than, is more important than anything else. You want to get your friend's head in the frame. Uh, you know, you want to be aimed in the right direction. Uh, and if you're looking for something that really tells a story about where you're at, anticipation helps you know to know that when either a bike's moving down the road or or this person's going to come over here and serve them food we'll stand where the food's going to be don't try and chase them you know like it'll come to you the photo will come to you if you know to look for it the camera itself doesn't really mean anything okay well how about for overall tips then for for going to south america someone looking to do something similar what are some of the glaring things that jump out to you you know that you would probably tell a buddy and say hey watch out for this or or remember to do this if you're going to go well, you know, I'd, I'd say, uh, you know, our most memorable experiences are ones where we're not the obvious tourist places. You know, someone will say, well, you got to go to, you know, Machu Picchu, and you got to Torres del Paine, you got to go to, the, you know, the equator, and yeah, do all those things. But the most memorable experience I think we had were when we deliberately, you know, and, and that's an aspect of motorcycle travel more than anything else, is, you know, went off. You know, off the, the beaten path. track. And, you know, whether it's in Nangus Marka with the town celebration or in some, you know, little town in, uh, you know, in Patagonia, we, you know, try and get away from the big cities um, and you'll enjoy, you'll get a richer experience. Number two, I would say, you know, I, I um, my nickname on the trip was The Professor Um because, and I would say, well, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, as they say. You know, the, there was one of us that actually read about the place before he went. That was me, I think. Um, so, I, you know, you don't want to know so much about where you're going that you're trying to find. You could, like, check off the boxes. I want to go to these five places because I've seen great photographs and people, you know, the, all the reviews say you've got to go and do this. Don't do that. But I think if you read enough about a place where you're going to be able to make sense of the experience. I think as a minimum, you know, you should do that. I mean, I read, you know, everything from Darwin's, you know, um, journals of the Beagle to, you know, Mario Vargas Losa to, you know, history of the country and all that kind of stuff. I probably went a little over the top, but I think just getting a little bit of enough background and culture to, to understand where you are without feeling like you've got kind of the, 
the tourist checklist. I've got to go to London and do Big Ben and the House of Parliament and they're changing the guard. You know, don't don't do that. I think that's just too formulaic. It's because you've got to let the experiences happen to you the same way funds are saying let the photographs come to you. I think a lot of the time just sitting somewhere and watching the world and talking to people is as important a part of the experience as trying to figure out how to take the perfect picture of Machu Picchu, which you can buy on a postcard. Don't even try and take that photograph. Right. So, Yeah, let life come to you. Um, as far as uh, to answer your question of uh, tips, uh, well, bring more patience, bring more time. Uh, and forget or leave your watch at home. Don't, don't think about time. Really, unless you have constraints, and we had our issues with writing at night, you know, and people didn't want to do it, and it's not—it's also just not a good idea. But uh, but don't rush yourself out of there. It's you're going to learn something, you're going to see something you'll never see again. Colin Alphonse, thank you very much. Great to have you on. It, it seems like an amazing trip that I, I think a lot of people will be jealous of. But at least we can actually read the book. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Nice to talk to you. And that was Alphonse Palima and Colin Evans, who did Expedition 65 with other people on the group as well. But they, between the two of them, they produced this incredible book. It's a coffee table book. It's called Journey to the End of the World. And if you like, uh, or if you're interested in South America at all, especially by motorcycle, this is definitely a book you want to get. It's by Octane Press, and it's available anywhere books are sold. A link to that will be in our show notes. Now, as we talked about in this episode, there's a film being made, being uh, put together. It's in post-production right now. Uh, although it's not available yet, it should be soon. So we'll watch for that. And of course, when it comes up, we're going to post it on our Facebook page as well. So you know if you follow us on Facebook, you'll see when that film comes out. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com.
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, of course, a listener. Thank you very much. Hey, if you like what we're doing and you want to help out, we could certainly use your support. Drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the support button, and there's a bunch of different ways to do it. I mean, we'll send a sticker back at you for $10 or more. $50 or more will get you a mention on our Raw show. That's our other show. We do it at the start of the show. We give the names of those people who supported in that fashion, but there's a bunch of different ways. It, it Really importantly, the Patreon thing that we've signed up for, if we can get those monthly donations up, that's just a, a you can put any amount, a dollar, $5, $25, whatever you want, so that each month your, your card would automatically support that amount. And that would help out tremendously because we don't have to worry about finding an advertiser for slots. We can just depend on the Patreon support. So that'd be great if that really gets up there. Uh, really appreciate it if you'd check it out. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Before you turn it off. Hang on. There's one more thing here. I was going to say, don't forget to drop by the website. Check out the show notes for this and all of our episodes. There's a whole bunch of stuff on there that you'll find uh, of interest, I'm sure. And also our Raw show, which is a separate show. You need to subscribe separately. But again, you can listen to all the episodes anytime you want. Drop by the website or for both shows, anywhere you download podcasts, you should be able to find our show. Hi, this is Warren Miller, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. 